I invite you all to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in your Bibles. You'll need a Bible to follow along for our message, so these brothers have some. As they make their way to the back, if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And it's marked for you at Ecclesiastes 4. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Ecclesiastes 4. There are so many things going on in Washington these days, it's hard to keep track. There's a special counsel investigation that involves people in the president's inner circle, and who knows where that ends. There was the failure to repeal and replace Obamacare just a few weeks ago. There is the war of words between the president and the leader of North Korea, and has many on edge, especially those in Guam and other places in the region. There was the violence at yesterday's white nationalist rally in Virginia and the deaths of three people and injuries to many more. And almost lost in all of this is the release of a report from a commission that the president assembled, which said that he should declare a state of emergency to deal with the opioid crisis. The crisis of people dying from overdose on certain kinds of drugs. The president has, in fact, followed that advice and declared it an emergency. And hopefully our leaders can find some solutions to this scourge on our country. The drug epidemic is so bad that hardly anyone is left untouched by it. Most have a friend or family member who has been harmed by it. So whatever can be done to lessen the consequences, I and I think most people will welcome. But I also must confess a degree of skepticism that the government will be able to make significant headway on the matter. Because I'm convinced that there's a spiritual component that the government cannot address. They can address things like doctors over-prescribing addictive medications and regulating the manufacture and distribution of some of those, and I'm sure that will help. But not every addict, or even most addicts, are so because they took prescription medication and got hooked. Instead, many turn to substances because their lives are without substance. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse conducted a study linking recovery to religion. They found that adults who don't consider religious beliefs important are more than one and a half times likelier to use alcohol and cigarettes, more than three times likelier to binge drink, almost four times likelier to use an illicit drug other than marijuana, and more than six times likelier to use marijuana. And that's all compared to adults who strongly believe that religion is important. Teens and children who are not spiritually or religiously inclined have even worse odds, says the study. You see, a lack of transcendent purpose in one's life is a major cause of drug abuse, and finding that purpose must then be part of the cure. And when you consider that addiction goes deeper than just substance abuse, but rather it includes all of the things and people to which we turn to gain our identity and our meaning, then you see that finding purpose is, in fact, of monumental importance. 
In 2008, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation held its annual conference, and they called it The Addict in Us All. The brochure read this, Addictions sounds ominous, doesn't it? The mind drifts to the junkie scoring dope and the husband who hides Jack Daniels in the back of the toilet. But now notice what happens when you take the same idea but use a word like temptation. Temptation that doesn't take no for an answer and won't surrender without a fierce fight. Do you see what just happened, they asked? Your mind races from drugs to gambling to shopping to eating to sexual addictions to people-pleasing and, of course, to you. Desires run amok. Welcome to the human heart. And this compulsion that we humans have to engage people and things in inordinate ways is due to a void that we have in our lives that we try to fill in various ways. And it's a problem for everyone. There is an addict in all of us because we all acquired the addiction at the same time. You see, when we sinned against God, as represented in our first parents, Adam and Eve, and God responded by removing us from his presence And the security of that most important relationship. That left a disconnect that has numerous and very negative effects. Sin is the great disconnect that causes all other things not to work correctly. The moment we were disconnected from God, stuff stopped working. And people started looking. Like a child separated from his parents, we look for love and meaning wherever we can find it. We try this and we try that to find satisfaction. We are addicts in that we were made to give ourselves to someone and something. But the disconnect from God creates a vacuum, a vacuum that will be filled in some way. The book of Ecclesiastes explores the meaninglessness. That's a word that... This book uses many times the meaninglessness that results from the sin disconnect. I want you to notice in the outline that we have prepared for you for today's message. It's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I want you to notice that each of the four major points says sin destroys and sin distorts and it diverts and it dilutes. Today we're going to see several of sin's effects. Before we then consider God's solution, let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we stand before you as needy people, ever in need of your grace. We need that grace as creatures, but we need that grace all the more as sinful creatures. For we have left our home. We have left our Father. We have left the security and all of the benefits that go with it. And so we find ourselves looking here and there and often every place except where that satisfaction, that security can be found. So, Lord, we thank you for writing to us in your book about us, about our plight, and about your solution. 
We ask you, Lord, to grant us now attentive minds and open hearts as we look at your word. Change us, Lord, for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in your outline, that sin destroys the will to live. Sin destroys the will to live. And I say that because of verse 1 in chapter 4. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Solomon was not speaking in the abstract, but rather was commenting on what he actually looked at and saw. He says again, I looked and saw. And he didn't have to look very hard to see people who were mistreated. The weak and the vulnerable require protection because it's all too common for them to be taken advantage of or just to be overlooked and therefore neglected. God's people were to be different and they were to look after those in need because doing so reflected the character of God himself. And God said to his people, if you fail to do so, when they cry out to me, Exodus 22, I will hear for I am compassionate. You see, God takes sides in this conflict between oppressor and the oppressed. And God is very much on the side of the oppressed, the vulnerable. He said through the prophet Amos, you who oppress the poor and crush the needy, you will be cast out. God said through the prophet Zechariah, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And then he listed the people who were most likely to be mistreated. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner. Pause there for a moment. The foreigner or the poor. And this is not just something that was applicable in the Old Testament when God carried out his plan through the nation Israel and its laws. It's also spoken of in our New Testament. James chapter 1. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress And keep yourself from being polluted by the world. God's requirements for care of the helpless extend to government and lawmakers. He said through Isaiah, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights. And he goes on, And they withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. So when Solomon saw what was happening in the world, he longed for someone to comfort the oppressed and to dry their tears. In a culture of exploitation, he wanted to rectify the wrongs and console the victims of injustice. So twice he lamented that there was no one who was able to offer any comfort in those first three verses. Solomon had an emotional response to both groups of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. It was the same righteous response that we see in the life of Jesus. When Jesus looked at those who were oppressed, this is what the Bible says of him. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep 
without a shepherd. And when Jesus dealt with the oppressors, and in particular, in particular the religious oppressors, the Bible tells us when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling, and he said, you have made my house a den of robbers. But what Solomon mostly felt, though he felt that same sense of emotion that Jesus did on both groups, what he mostly felt, did Solomon, was frustration because he could not end the oppression. And we, most of us, feel the same frustration when we hear the plight of people that are in need, they are being held down, they're being oppressed, and yet we can't do anything about it. Consider when we hear about the persecuted church and what's being done to some of our brothers and sisters in some parts of God's world. And we grieve for that. and We want to do something, but we're unable to stop it. Consider the true story of a 19-year-old Egyptian girl. We'll call her Lana. She was raised in a devout Muslim home. Lana had always been taught to despise Christianity, but one day a friend from school invited her to listen to a radio program on which she heard the gospel. So Lana began to wonder whether Jesus Christ was truly God or whether he was merely a messenger from God, as she had always been told. As she read the Bible, she came to a clear conviction that Jesus is the Christ. Now, sadly, when Lana accepted Jesus as her Savior and her Lord, she was attacked by her own family. Her father beat her. Her mother would not allow her to sit with the family at meals. Eventually, they declared that Lana was as good as dead to them. But even after they threw her out of the house, they continued to persecute her. She was kidnapped and beaten until she was broken and unconscious. In the midst of seeing all of this injustice, all of it contrary to the character of God and to God's commandments, Solomon came to the sobering conclusion of verse 2. I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both, the dead and the living, better than both is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. You see, if one really looks and observes all the wrong in the world, and does that only from the perspective under the sun, then in fact Solomon's conclusion is quite reasonable. Job had a crisis of belief in the midst of his own suffering, and Job said something similar. He said, May the day of my birth perish. And the night that said, a boy is conceived. Sin. Life disconnected from God. Life looked at from only under the sun destroys the will to live. Second. It distorts the reason for work. Destroys the will to live, but it distorts the reason for work. Verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now think about why you work. 
It's hard for us to be honest about our own motivations when we're asked why we do what we do. It's hard for us to be honest because this is what the Bible says about all of us and our hearts. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So whenever you are asked, why do you do what you do? Don't be so confident of your own answer. It's very easy for us to deceive ourselves. So though we may not consciously think of our reasons for work very often, and even when we do, our hearts are not honest with us. Verse 4 is saying that very often we work out of envy of others. Much of our work is motivated by the sinful desire to get ahead in life by getting ahead of other people. One preacher said, we see our neighbor and we want what he has. We want his possessions. We want his position. We want his power. If the neighbor has, in those days, a new chariot, we need a new chariot. In Solomon's day, this was called keeping up with the Steinbergs. And it's at least as bad, but probably worse, in our day. It used to be, a few generations ago, that our circles were so confined. We would stay put in the same place. But now we travel with ease. We go across town and we say, look at this house. It makes mine look so bad. So I need a new or improved one. We even possess electronic envy stimulators called television and computers. We pipe into our family rooms things that we've never seen before and we realize that we have needs we never knew we had. Economists sometimes identify the competitive urge of self-interest as the very engine that drives a capitalist economy. But Solomon sees a deeper motivation at work, a motivation that comes from a selfish heart. The truth is, wanting more than we need is what makes capitalism succeed, and that impulse is often spurred on by envious comparison to others. Now, of course, envy is not the only reason that people work. And if we take this verse by itself, it sounds like an exaggeration. There certainly are exceptions to the reasons for which people work that prove the rule. But one commentator says, but Solomon still has a point. One of the reasons we work so hard is to get what our neighbor has. And this is why some people shortchange the government on their taxes, or they cheat their customers, or they get into debt on their credit cards. It's because we envy what other people have and will do anything to get it. There are many things we're tempted to envy. For example, someone's looks or abilities or situation in life. Someone else has the job or the grades or the girl that we always wanted. But of all the things we're tempted to envy, usually our neighbor's possessions are near the top of the list. Just remember the 10th commandment that says you shall not covet. Most things that that commandment tells us not to covet are things that money can buy. It lists your neighbor's house, his servants, his ox, his donkey. We work hard to get more money, to buy more things, or else we pull out the plastic to engage in what one economist called retail therapy. If we get everything we covet, someone else will envy us, and the cycle continues. So what's the solution? Well, one response is found in verse 5. 
fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So the foolish response says, I won't get caught up in the competition game. I'll just remove myself from work altogether. And so I'll never have the pressures and stresses that those caught in the rat race have. But that also means you'll not make it on your own. And so you'll be dependent on others for your support. Not only is that immoral since we were made by God to work, but it's also dangerous to rely on the compassion of people who are not naturally compassionate. So that's one solution. That's the solution of the fool, to just throw in the towel on the whole thing. Verse 6 gives another one. Better one handful of tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, this is similar to what the same Solomon said in the book of Proverbs. He said, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. That is, it's better to have a small amount with internal peace and a relationship with God than to have all you can hold that was acquired by scratching and clawing in the dog-eat-dog world to get ahead. It's better to have a very basic meal in a setting where you're loved than to have the finest fare shared with people who don't want to be around you. And the reason they don't want to be around you is the result of a life that's animated by always wanting more. So sin destroys the will to live. It distorts the reason that we work. And I say in your outline, it diverts the pursuit of value. It diverts the pursuit of value. Verse 7, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. I say in your outline, what Solomon is discussing here is the fact that we often treasure things. This is a description of a man whose treasure was in stuff. And the acquisition of stuff. It's the sad tale of a person who's all alone due to his obsession with acquiring more and more. We aren't given his name, but he lives and he works alone. If this man has a wife, she's not mentioned. So this may be the biography of someone never willing to make time for a wife. He has no heir, no son to inherit his wealth. So he's working feverishly for himself, not for the benefit of anyone else. And Solomon says this is meaningless from start to finish. There seemed to be no end to this man's work. Day after day, he kept working away from dawn until dark. How long was his work week? 60 hours? 70? And yet this miser was never satisfied. He always wanted more. Scholar Derek Kidner calls him the compulsive moneymaker. But for what purpose? No matter what he gained, the man had no one with whom to share it. 
He was working too hard to make any friends or to start a family. So commentator Philip Ryken says of this man, apparently the man did not even take the time to stop and ask himself what he was doing with his life. Or if he did ask the question, he could not answer it. Here he was making costly sacrifices to advance his career and build up his bank account, yet never even considering whether it was all worth it. Solomon could see that this, that is most certainly, it was not worth it. The man's sacrifices were worth less. His possessions could never satisfy his soul, and without anyone to share it with, his life would end in unhappiness. Living and working for ourselves is one of the fastest ways to turn the American dream into a nightmare. We've already seen in this book of Ecclesiastes that, in fact, work can be a pleasure, but not if we pursue it for our own selfish purposes. To find pleasure in our work, we need to ask ourselves the question in verse 8 that that lonely man asked. And we need to come up with the right answer. For whom am I toiling? Not for myself, the Christian is to say, but for the glory of God and the good of other people, including the people I love in the family of God. Syndicated columnist Ellen Goodman wrote a story a few years ago about a workaholic who died. When he passed away at the age of 51, his obituary said that the cause of death was coronary thrombosis. But most of the people who knew him knew better. At the office six days a week, often until eight or nine at night, his friends and family said that he had simply worked himself to death. Yet on the day of the funeral, when the company was already making inquiries about his replacement, the president looked around the office for candidates and said, well, who's been working the hardest? It's going to have to be somebody like that to replace this guy. But the most telling line was delivered by the dead man's wife. When a friend said, I know how much you will miss him, she said, referring to all of those years of absence, oh, I already have. We often treasure things. But here's what we should do in your outline. We should treasure people. You see, sin diverts the pursuit of what's valuable. It diverts the pursuit of value. It causes us to value things that are really lesser. We treasure things when, in fact, we should treasure people. Verse 9 says, two are better than one. We were created at the very beginning in our first parents. We were created to be naturally social beings. God said at the very beginning of human history, it's not good to be alone. But sin drives wedges between people rather than bringing people together. God's design that we interact regularly with other people is not just true of marriage, though of course it's certainly true there, but it's true of all our relationships. We're not designed to fly solo, but instead to live in community with others. Togetherness is better than loneliness. Connection is better than competition. And there are tangible benefits to relationship and camaraderie with other people. Verse 9 says, two are better than one because 
they have a good return for their labor. It's saying we're more productive in our work when it's together. The man in verse 8 had no one for whom or with whom to work. But when two people work together well, they accomplish more than twice as much as either could accomplish alone. It's true in church. It's true in the workplace. It's true at home. Our work is more rewarding in every way when it's shared with someone else. And when we're involved in the lives of others, it means there will be help for us in times of difficulty. Verse 10 says this, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Now, I don't know whether the life alert people who trademark the I fall help, I fall in and I can't get up. They trademarked that for their commercials. I don't know that they were portraying truth from Ecclesiastes and whether they knew that. But in fact, perhaps unwittingly, they were. You see, friends, when, not if we fall, we need someone on whom we can call. And that's true literally, but it's also true metaphorically. We each get knocked down. We get knocked down by life's trials and life's troubles. Sometimes somebody pushes us, and sometimes we just trip over our own two feet, but either way, we end up on the ground. We try something, we end up failing. Relationships get broken. Financial difficulties make us feel desperate. Against our own better judgment, we fall into grievous sin. All of us fall, sometimes physically, very often metaphorically. Two are better than one. Two are better than one because it gives us help for one another, but also because of what verse 11 says. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now Solomon is thinking here of a traveler in the wilderness. The desert, believe it or not, at certain times of the year could get very cold and one could freeze even to death. But if he has a companion, they can sleep back to back and be warm all night. Those great theologians The eagles understood this when they said in their song, Desperado, you ain't getting no younger. Your pain and your hunger are driving you home. And freedom, oh, freedom, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. And then they ask, don't your feet get cold in the wintertime. So you have this danger that if you're left alone, that you'll have no one to help you in whatever way is needed, including being warmed, as an example. And another danger faced by travels, travelers was the possibility of being robbed. So verse 12 says this, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, two together can protect one another, and three are all the more secure. It's saying there's safety in numbers. It's saying we all need people who have our back. And it's true not only in terms of traveling, but it's true in our spiritual journey as well. 
You see, friends, you were not made and I were not was not made to go it alone. There's no such thing biblically as a lone ranger Christian. I've heard many times over the years folks say, I can worship God without going to church. Now, you're at church, so I'm guessing you haven't said that lately. But maybe you've said it. Maybe you've heard people say it. I can worship God without going to church, but they fail to understand that God was the one who created the church. And that God gave it in part for our spiritual well-being so that we're upheld by brothers and sisters through loving accountability and prayer for one another and by providing solid examples of spiritual maturity that we can emulate. You see, the Bible's answer to Cain's question to the Lord back in Genesis chapter 4, am I my brother's keeper? The Bible's answer to that is an emphatic yes. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Notice this, brothers and sisters, see to it that no one falls into that. And then goes on to say, But encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it is simply nonsense to say that a Christian does not need the church. We were made for one another, and the church is God's new community in which we grow because we lovingly hold each other accountable and spur each other on through encouragement. Sin destroys the will to live. It distorts the reason we work. It diverts the pursuit of value. And then I say in your outline as well, it dilutes the pleasure of approval. It dilutes the pleasure of approval. I'm going to read the last four verses of our passage, verses 13 to 16, and then explain them. Verse 13, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were born before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. Now, what is that about? And why do I say sin dilutes the pleasure of approval based on those four verses? Well, the way this reads at first glance, it sounds like there are only two kings in the story. There's the old king and then there's the young king who takes his place. But in fact, there are two young kings that follow the first one, the old king. Verse 15, literally in Hebrew, has the words second youth. So that it reads, I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the second youth, the king's successor. This second youth is the successor to the first young king, who was the successor of the old king. So you really got three kings here. And the sin I mentioned in the outline might be the sin of the person who is approved. He may become like the first king, the old king, who became stubborn and would not take advice. Or the sin may be on the part of those who formerly approved, 
But because they are fickle and faithless and they abandoned the king who they had once admired simply because someone new and exciting came along. Sin on the part of the person approved or on the part of those giving the approval dilutes its pleasure. So here you have in verses 7 through 12, we were taught the need for having people in our lives. But now in verses 13 through 16, we're warned about living for the approval of people. If you live for people's approval, hear this, you'll find you're a slave to opinion that easily shifts and your well-being will shift with it. And this is certainly the case if you're in any position of leadership. Have you ever tried, most of us have been in a position of leadership. Maybe not huge, maybe not something big, but most of us have had to lead a project, lead something. Have you ever tried to organize something and there are always people who don't like the way you did it? It's amazing. It's amazing how people complain. It's amazing how fickle people are. When I was younger, uh, we would have young friends after church and we would be standing around after church and we would say, Hey, what are we going to do? You guys, you guys want to go out? Yeah, we all want to go out. Where do you want to go? Nobody, nobody says anything. Nobody comes up with a suggestion. And I would always wait. I would wait patiently. Somebody going to come up with something? Nobody comes up with anything. So I would go, let's go here. And then somebody would kind of murmur, why does he always think he's in charge? You try to organize anything, even a small group. There are always going to be people who don't like the way you did it. If you lead anything, whether a business, a classroom, a state, a nation, a home, or a church, you cannot be dependent on whether or not people adore you because they may at one time, but friends, not necessarily later. And if you get your identity from what's supplied to you by the approval of others, you will find yourself very up and down in your emotions. There's a saying about being a politician in D.C. If you want to be loved in Washington, get a dog. And I know pastors who are this way. They so desire and feed off of and crave words of affirmation from the congregation that if they don't hear those each week, they're down and wondering what they've done wrong. You see, the sooner they understand that people may turn you in for a new one or turn from you to a new one, leave you all together and go to the coolest thing, the latest thing that's going on, the sooner we understand that, friends, the less we're going to live for that approval. The answer to this dilemma is what you've heard me say in the past. We all need to learn to love people more than we need them. To love people more than need them. That is, we'll serve them for their well-being and what we can provide for them rather than what they do for us. What they do for us is unpredictable. But you can love them and you can love them consistently because you have the love of the one whose commitment to you does not change. And so the Apostle John could say, we love because he first loved us. And if I have that, and if I live in that knowledge, now that can translate into the way that I love others rather than needing them. So sin does all of these things. It destroys, it dilutes, it diverts. 
But Christ and God's grace reorient our perspective on all of the four things that are mentioned in this passage. It reorients our perspective on oppression and injustice and all of the ugliness that happens in a sin-cursed world. As an example, the Civil War correspondent Samuel Wilkerson demonstrated the redeemed perspective that God provides when he surveyed the carnage after the Battle of Gettysburg. In the providence of God, the journalist discovered the body of his own son, who had fought for the Union and had fallen in battle. In his grief, Wilkerson did not despair, but he claimed the promise of the resurrection, that those who die in Christ are immediately with the Lord and their bodies will one day rise again. And here's what he wrote for the New York Times, standing next to the body of his beloved son. O you dead, who at Gettysburg have baptized from your blood the second birth of freedom in America, how you are to be envied. I rise from a grave whose set clay I have passionately kissed. And I look up and I see Christ reaching fraternally and lovingly up to heaven. His right hand opens the gates of paradise. And with his left, he beckons to those mutilated, bloody, swollen bodies to ascend. That's a radically different perspective on all that goes wrong in this life. Because we know this is not the end. Or consider that Egyptian girl that I mentioned earlier. Lana, the 19-year-old Egyptian convert who was persecuted because of her faith in Christ. When Lana was disowned by her family, what kept her from despair was her faith in the resurrection power of God in life after death with Jesus. I'm in real danger, she testified, but I trust God because he is alive. My comfort is... That it's only a short time I'm spending here on earth, but there will be a long time that I'll spend with him. We know, she says, there will come a time when there will be no more sorrow or suffering. This is our hope in the Lord Jesus. Grace radically reorients our perspective on what sin destroys and dilutes and diverts. It does that on work. Because now... We work for a different purpose. We don't work out of motivated by jealousy or to acquire stuff. We work for God, not in competition with others. And we know that God will reward our faithfulness in the work that we do for his glory. It changes our perspective on what's of value. It's now no longer that we value things, but we value people. And if I'm loved in relationship with him, I can love others in all of my relationships. And the grace of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ changes our approach to approval. If I have my identity in him, then the fickleness and approval of others will not control me. Sin destroys, distorts, diverts, and dilutes. (laughs) But where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And that's why I say in your take-home truth, Sin makes what is good bad. God's grace makes what is bad good. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for instructing us 
with truth, truth that is real, to the world in which we live, to the fallenness that we are surrounded with and which is in our own hearts. Thank you, Father, for telling us what our malady is and how our hearts easily wander from you because sin began with the great disconnect. That disconnect from you means that nothing works the way it was intended. And sin has all of these consequences in our lives that we have to deal with. Thank you for helping us to identify them. But then beyond identifying them, giving us the solution found in the grace that is in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will help us as your people to regularly meditate and think about, think on what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and who we are and whose we are. And may that make a profound difference then in how we see others and in how we see you and in how we see ourselves and our circumstances. Lord, may it translate then into the way we live Monday through Saturday with the things that you have sovereignly called us to experience in order to grow us. May these truths make a practical difference in our lives to bring you glory even this week. And we will give you the praise for what you do. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.